Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring of which the Lord will give you by this young woman. And Father, we do thank you for the story. Lord, we ask that as we study it today, you would help us. You would help us to see the the meaning, what happened in its original text. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, Lord, to see application uh, for our lives today. I ask that you'd encourage us, Lord, grow us closer to you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but I am thoroughly enjoying this, the story of Ruth. I, uh, I have to guard myself because I want to sort of start back at chapter 1, verse 1, and sort of fly through the story to rehash us, uh, rehash what's happened up to this point. But, I, but I'm guarding myself of, of at least not doing that for the first two chapters. Um, by chapter 2, we know that Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, have made it back to Bethlehem. Uh, Ruth goes out and she begins to glean behind the reapers and and she meets this man Boaz who is older, single, uh, capable of um, providing f- for a number of people. 
He meets Ruth. He he's heard of her and her reputation. And so he's gracious to her. He allows her to stay on his land. He offers her protection uh, for as a as a young widow. She would have been subject to all sorts of um, possibilities. It was a land of judges of, of being abused, raped. A number of things could have happened. And then she was a, a Moabite, a person who was not necessarily welcomed in Israel. There would have been a, a, a line of almost racism between the two groups. And he basically told his men, hey, no Moabite jokes. You, you treat her with respect. If she goes in uh, to the place that hasn't been harvested yet, you allow her to do so. It was a, a, a very beautiful, gracious sort of story that unfolded. By the end of chapter Two, we see that Boaz had allowed her to stay in the area to continue uh, to glean and to work on his property through uh, the harvest of the, the wheat and the barley season. The author sort of leaves us hanging like, how's the story going to play out? What's going to happen once once the harvest ends? How are Ruth and Naomi going to provide for themselves? And we entered last week into chapter three. And. The season had come to an end and Boaz was going to be up at the threshing floor. It was a, a community sort of um, piece of property that would have been up on a hill. And they would reserve their days when they could come uh, to sort through the, the wheat and the shaft. I think they were doing barley. Um, oh, if I might know, so I'm pretty sure it was barley. And so the mother-in-law says, you know what? Boaz is going to be up there tonight. Uh, threshing or winnowing on the threshing floor and so this is where they they sort the usable from the unusable he would work all day they would they would do it he would work into sunset they would start in the evening when the breeze was just right and then they would guard the usable food overnight before they brought it back into town the mother-in-law says ruth it's time for you to to shower to change your clothes uh, put on a little perfume and make your way up to the threshing floor. Cover yourself up so you're, you're not seen. Uh, wait until after they're done working, until he's eaten and, and, and drank a few drinks. See where he makes his bed, and then you make your way over to the place where he lies down. And once he's asleep, sneak over to his feet. And, and whatever he tells you to do, go ahead and do that. I talked about what a horrible idea I thought this was. This is how prostitutes would offer their services uh, in this in this time period there was much to risk three options the first option is that uh, boaz thought she was a prostitute and took her up on the offer as a prostitute that would not be good the second option was that boaz could have thought that she was acting as a prostitute and he didn't want anything to do with it and so all of her reputation would have been sort of flushed down the toilet and the third option, which is the least likely option, is that he would understand her intentions. And, and it's exactly as the story plays out. She says, I, I want to marry you. You're a kinsman. He says, this is a great idea, but there's somebody that's closer than I. And so he says, stay here till morning. In the morning, I want you to cover yourself. I want you to leave before anybody can see you. Here's more food. Take this to your mother-in-law. Ruth heads home. Naomi's, hey, what happened last night? So, well, he gave all this food for you. And apparently there's a, a closer kinsman to him. And in verse 18 of chapter three, 
Naomi tells Ruth this, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. She says, Ruth, don't even go to sleep. I know you've been up all night, excited, your heart's sunk. Boaz is a man of integrity. He's a, he's a businessman and he's not going to push this off for a few weeks. He's going to resolve this today as soon as he can. So let me just go brush your teeth and hang out and see how this turns out. And so as Ruth heads back to her mother-in-law, chapter four, verse one, we follow Boaz. And Ruth really doesn't even, she's in the story, but she's not center stage. Boaz really takes center stage here. And so we see that Boaz went up to the gate and he sat down there. She goes to the mother-in-law, he goes to the gates. Now the gate would have been the the, the main entrance into the town. And don't just think a, a you know, like a, a bar that sits over a road that, that's like a swing arm, an entrance. Think, think big wall building. As you enter in, there would have been a number of compart- like compartments, maybe, I don't know, 10 by 12 or whatever rooms with a bench where, where business could be conducted. And so Boaz heads to the gate and he sits down there and you you get the impression that his plan is to sit there and just to, to wait. Hopefully, this other guy will show up. And if this guy shows up, then I can make the transaction. And that's exactly how it unfolds. And now Boaz went up the gate and sat down there. And now, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. I love this. Like all through Ruth, there's this, this subtleness of the sovereignty of God sort of working behind the scenes that... Ruth just happened to to end up in Boaz's field. And now Boaz is at the gate and he just happens to be this relative walks by. And Boaz says to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And they sat down. I love this picture of Boaz. He is a guy on a mission. He is not wasting words he's not dilly-dallying he clearly has authority and influence he's respected by the community that this guy who's referred to as friend which i'll get to in a second walks by says hey there you are sit down one two three four five six seven eight nine ten okay you ten guys i got a quorum sit down and they all do there's no like talking back today this is really a, a a transcript of a courtroom case essentially is what this is. This is a legal document that basically shows the legal transfer of property from one owner to the next. Now this word friend, most translations, when Boaz addresses this man, most translations say friend. Uh, There's so many commentaries kind of looking at the Hebrew exchange here. The Young's literal translation handles it like in its most accurate uh, terminology. It said, he he turned aside such and such. Sort of this, it's not that the name isn't known of this man. As the story unfolds, we'll see that it's almost intentional of God that this man's name is basically blotted out of the records, that he's, he's not, that this vagueness is very intentional. We have all of these details. We know about Malon and Klingon or Chilion and Ruth and Boaz, that, that this 
half of this chapter, which is a large part of Ruth, is dedicated to this courtroom scene. And this guy's name just happens not to be there. It's not coincidence. His name is left out. And we'll get into that later. But he basically says, hey, bro, come on, sit down. I need to talk to you. We have some business to deal with. Verse 2, he gets the 10 men. He sits them down. And in verse 3, he gets to the business at hand. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi has come back from the land of Moab. Has to sell. Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So he sort of looks at the problem. There's this piece of land. She has to sell it. Our minds are quick to sort of go down the road of like, hey, she had this land. Why didn't she just sell it and like make money and keep living with that money? But it's it's far more complex. And I'm, I'm, I don't know that I could relay it accurately, like exactly the laws are laid out. But it was clear that when somebody died and they had land and property, it never went to their spouse, never to the widow, never to the daughters. It always went to sons, brothers, males within their family. The women were very, very, very excluded from owning property. So it's not like she owns this land. Some sort of, and trying to piece together what was happening here, for, for lack of better terms, it would be like um, this land in our day had entered into probate. And it's up to, to Naomi sort of, has to sort out the the transfer of this property. It's not mentioned anywhere else. It's not mentioned by her, by Ruth, by anybody that this is a situation. I think that they were more concerned with getting food and surviving. What a number of commentators sort of speculate is that what happened when they made the decision to go to Moab as Elimelech was running out of food, he began to sell pieces of property and 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 items to survive and when they got down to the bond that all we have is this land he sold it or leased it but they tried to keep the the land connected to the family so even if you were given this plot of land you always sort of retained the right to buy it back but if things got rough and the place where elimelech got what he could have done to get his land back had he not died was he could have sold himself into slavery to the person who controlled the land. Boaz is this wise businessman. He understands what's going on. I think that, I believe that he probably had been sort of eyeballing Ruth for a while. Why did she have to be the aggressor? Why, why, did, why did she initiate everything? Well, remember, her mom-in-law said, shower, throw on some deodorant, perfume, Put on your nice clothes. This wasn't like she was getting gussied up. If you go to, to Samuel when David lost his son and he was done mourning, he did the same thing. He changed, put on perfume, went into the house of worship. And I think that what happened is her mother-in-law said, you're done mourning the loss of your husband. And so when she goes to Boaz, she's basically saying, I'm back on the market and I want to marry you. So what are you going to do here? <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's get going. 
And so Boaz recognizes this piece of property. And I, I see this as sort of like a probate case that this, when the husband died, he didn't have his estate in order. Uh, Ruth and Naomi would have had rights. It's a word. I, uh, I said it during the last one. I have to be very careful with the word. I, I, it's a usa fruct. And it is essentially sort of like a legal term that was like squatting rights. That because, because it was land that was sort of connected to her husband, she could sit on the land, she could bear, use the fruit of the land, but she didn't own the land. And so it was like a complicated sort of legal mess. And here Boaz is trying to sort through how to get this piece of property out of probate. Well, he's trying to get the girl. And the land is how he's going to get the girl. And so he, he pitches a situation. Naomi, you know Naomi, the one that's connected, our, our brother's widow. There's this land, she needs to sell it. Verse 4, so I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you. He's like, there's this piece of property. There's been, there's a legal matter. You're first in line. I thought I'd come to you when I found out about this. It's up to you to redeem it. And so if you want to redeem this piece of property, go ahead and redeem it. If not, I'll do it. And I don't know about you guys, but man, are you guys all pulling for Boaz in this? I've been like, is the love stories kind of coming together? It's like, oh man, like, he likes her. He likes her. It's working out of the, at the foot of the bed last week and, or the foot of the floor. And, and, and he says, but we have a problem. There's another guy that's closer. And I didn't really like how he reacted because he said, if he'll redeem you good, let him redeem you. It's like, come on, Boaz, fight for the girl. Don't just give up like that. And so he comes to this, he comes to the gate and he says, hey, there's this pretty piece of property. It's a fire sale. It's all wrapped up in, in legal problems. But for us, we're relatives. We can just go in and swipe it up. It's like, Boaz, you really, you got to pitch this a different way. Because look what happens. The guy says, I will redeem it. You're like, no, no. No, because what did Boaz says? If he will redeem it, then good. It's like Boaz just said, okay, I'm out of this. You just, you got, you got the land. You got the, what are you doing, Boaz? Well, Boaz is a smart man. And he's actually brilliant in how he pitches this. He says, oh, I need to tell you about this land. As I found out about it, I, I've already ran an inspection on the home and, uh, you know, the swimming pool's got some problems because it's been sitting for 10 years and uh, the irrigation, there's a bunch of leaks. And upstairs, there's a mother-in-law that comes with it, by the way, Buster. Oh, mother-in-law. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, and her Moabite daughter-in-law also is there that you, um, you're going to kind of have to marry and have kids with. Brilliant, Boaz, Brilliant. Verse 5, then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi. Who's Naomi? Oh, yeah. that's uh, You must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, 
the widow of the deceased in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. At this point, this man, such and such, the closest relative who we have no idea, suddenly his mind starts going. And I really think that the way Boaz pitched this set him up to show the true character of this man. He's a dirtball. I mean, maybe that's going too hard, but he's, I'll get into why I think that earlier or later. I did earlier, but I'm going to do it again later. So he, he introduces this Ruth the Moabitess. And so this guy's like sitting here. He's got the 10 people. Like this whole legal transaction is about to go down. He said, I'll redeem it. I'll, I'll, I'll sign the dotted line. And maybe his, was his verbal good enough? Well, we're going to see he had to take off his shoe. They did notaries a little bit differently back then, but so they, he didn't notarize the event. But suddenly with the mention of the Moabite girl, he's going, man, I just did my trust last week. I have it all set up for my two boys or whoever. I have it all set up so that all my properties, when I said this, I just thought it was a piece of land that I would add to my estate. And so that the name of my family would be great. That they would go on and the next generation would be better off and we would be able to to build our empire. And the irony here is that, that his name is sort of withheld from the records. He's like, if I take this, it comes with a Moabite woman. This incestual people. If I take the land, I've got to take the girl. I've got to produce kids. My name's no longer great. No longer pure Israel, but I have to... To mix with this incestuous people in my name will become connected with Moab. I don't want to do this. It is, different. It is a totally different situation. And I don't want my imagination to go wild, but hey, why not? You know, like I'm having fun with this. But I don't think it's saying, well, Boaz, he's old, he's unmarried. His mom was a prostitute. What's he care about his name? I mean, really. His mom was Rahab. He, he's already not a purebred. He's, he is not, I see why he wants this. It is, makes sense. He goes on to say the closest relative said, verse 6, I can, I cannot, he said it twice, I cannot redeem it for myself. Like, I don't want to redeem this because of the situation that it would place on my family and my, 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 um, my legacy. Because it would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right to redemption, for I cannot redeem it. And thinking about this guy, and they know who Naomi is. We sort of brought out last week or a couple weeks ago that neither one of these men had any sort of, um, by the letter of the law, they did not have an obligation to be a kinsman redeemer to, to, to Naomi or Ruth. They, they were too far. The law had said that if, 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 a, if a man dies and he's left with a widow, his brother 
must marry. So if it was a brother, he had to do it. They're farther than brother. And now we're talking about Ruth, who's a little bit distant. Maybe they're like cousins. They're the closest, but they're, they're certainly not under the letter of the law to fulfill the Leverite law. But in this chapter, we see that while it wasn't the letter of the law, the spirit of the law was that if there was a relative, no matter how far, and they lost everything, because of the way the situation was set up, we're to care for our family members. We're to care for the widows. And so even though they were distant and it wasn't required on them, they, they had that option to sort of carry out the kinsman um, Option, And we even see that in the previous chapter, in verse 10, chapter 2, when she proposes to him, his response is, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first, meaning that your proposal to me is better than the way you cared for your mother-in-law after your husband and your father-in-law passed away. What you've done is, to me is far greater. Why is it greater than the first by not going after younger men, whether rich or poor? He said, you're a total free agent. You're a young, pretty girl. You could marry whoever you want. You're under no obligation to me. Well, he was under no obligation to her, yet he showed her kindness. That he was gracious to her. And you see her being gracious to him or following this way out of her deep love for her mother-in-law. And I see this guy, the closest relative, who clearly had wealth and he knew about the need. That clearly he hasn't stepped in and intervened. Something I read uh, yesterday, I've been studying this, studying this, studying this. And the one, one uh, commentator I read um, likened this man to something. Oh, I, I'm going to kind of lead into this. I don't want to give it away. But he likened this unnamed man to something else in the Bible. We're all through the story. I've always known Boaz is sort of likened to Christ. He's sort of this foreshadow. Here's this man who redeems this young girl who is helpless. But Christ redeems us. But when he looked at this man saying, essentially, I will not redeem her and I cannot redeem. Well, he didn't say her. He said it, the land. His failure, his inability to redeem Ruth is like the law. And I'm like, that's beautiful. Now you say, what do you mean? Why? Well, I, I already told you to hold your place. So keep your place in Ruth, but flip over to 2 Corinthians and don't lose your place. We're going to kind of be going back and forth here. This is the first. And so Paul, as he writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 4. He's going to start this this play, this contrast between the spirit and the law. Verse 4, he says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills But the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? 
For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Now, I want to sort of notice three times it says, for the letter kills, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. Those three things are are referring to, to the law. The 613 commands are often referred to as the Ten Commandments. Notice in verse 7, ministry of death in letters engraved on stones. The picture of like the Ten Commandments. We hear people all the time, or I don't, maybe not all the time, but I hear it all. Oh, I live by the Ten Commandments. I just keep the commandments. It's like, huh, how are you doing on those Ten Commandments? Doing great. Really? Are you honest enough that we can sort of talk through and sort of work through how you're really doing on the Ten Commandments? Look, it says the, the ministry of death, the letter kills. The ministry of condemnation that Paul in Galatians and Romans 4... 15, I think is where it is, 415. It it shows that the law cannot save you. The law has one purpose, to expose your sin, to show you that you're incapable. And he says it's glorious. He says these stones, that even though it's the ministry of death, they're glorious. But just like this other guy back in Ruth, who was unable and unwilling to redeem the land in her, is the law to us in salvation. You can't be saved by your own works. Try to live out the law. All it's going to show you is the death that resides within you. And what are you going to do with that? Now, going back to Ruth, keep your place there in 2 Corinthians because we're going to come back. And so as soon as Boaz explains the mother-in-law that has this daughter and you know you're gonna have to marry her and have some kids and the guy's like time out time out time out you didn't tell me about that when you said about the land you said you described rolling hills and fresh springs and you didn't mention any moabite woman for i can't my inheritance my wealth will be in jeopardy the most selfish sort of position in this guy he says, you take it, Boaz, for I cannot redeem it. It's like, Boaz, I'm so sorry for calling you a knucklehead for percent. You're a genius. You knew what you're doing this whole time. You, I don't know if he knew the guy or his character or whatever, but Boaz, he positioned it in a way, the honorable way, to marry Ruth. Now, verse 7 is a, is a parenthetical statement. Let me explain. Let's, let's read verse 6, and I'm going to jump straight down to verse 8. Now it says, The closest relative said, For I cannot redeem it myself, because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 8. So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. So, so we're kind of far away from the story. And he took off his sandal like... I'm not going to do it because I don't want to, it's too hard to have my shoe back on up here. But it's like, he's like, hey, you can redeem her. And he pops off his shoe. And we're like, what? Are we, what? Just, why would he take off his shoe? What's that have to do with anything? Now, apparently when the author wrote, we know that this writing happened a few, gener- a few lives later because at the very end of Ruth, we, 
We have the genealogy that David would come. And so at the time of writing this custom, it seems that the custom had sort of already faded, that it wasn't being enacted because verse 7 is there. Now, when they wrote this, when the author writes this, we don't know who wrote Ruth. In verse 7, he gives this sort of parenthetical statement to explain what is going on with the shoe. It says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So he's saying this is how they, this is the old style notary. There's all sorts of speculation, like nobody really knows. Some, some have suggested that the, the shoe coming off was symbolic of earlier promises that you shall enter the land and walk in the land. And as you're in the land, God's blessing will come. And so if the guy takes off his shoe and hands it to another, he's sort of symbolizing, I won't walk in that land. It's your land to walk in. We don't know. But we, it's clear he takes off his shoe and he's surrendering any legal claim that he has on this piece of property and these two women and in verse 9 then boaz said to the elders and all the people you guys saw that right i got the shoe you are witnesses today that i have bought from the land of naomi all that belonged to elimelech and all that belonged to chilion and all and malon moreover i have acquired ruth the moabitess the widow of Malon. This is the first time we understand who was she married to. This is the first place when, when those two boys died. This is the first place we learned who Ruth married. So we learned who her husband was. He says, I've acquired Ruth, the widow of Malon, to be my, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. I'm all for short engagements. And this is a short engagement. It was only a couple hours ago he got engaged. And he says, hey, boys, let it be known. I want to get married. I love this. You know, today's our anniversary. So we had a short engagement, but not that short. Bible says if you're unmarried and you're struggling, go ahead and get married. We kind of spread things out, rip the bandit off slowly. He said, no, I know this is the girl I want to marry. She... Let me know last night. Well, he didn't go into all the details of how he came to know, but I'm ready to marry this girl. She is a girl of character. And I'm going to marry her, and I'm hoping to have children so that the name of Malon and Elimelech will not be done away with. You guys are witnesses. We're married. Beautiful. This is a man of action. Type A personality. I like it. And then in verses 11 through 12, we see the reaction of those 10, the witnesses that are there, and all the people who were in the court, and the elders said, we are witnesses. We see that you have the sandal. We've recorded it here. We know that this transfer of land and of Ruth and Naomi have legally been transferred to you. He has no claim. And quite frankly, I think at this point, the other guy's out of there. He's like, man, I'm free and clear. I don't want to be a part of this. I was going grocery shopping. Like, I was not planning on being involved in this mess. And so then the people who are witnesses say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. 
both of whom who built the house of Israel. It's like, what is he saying? Well, Rachel, it took her many years to conceive. I believe that because of Ruth's reputation, we see from earlier that her that, that she was a good woman. She'd converted to the true God of Israel, that she's walking with the Lord. Boaz had heard about her. He understood that when she converted and came back, she was falling after the God of Israel. But she'd been married for 10 years and never had a child. And so here they're praying, well, maybe like, like Rachel, may God give you children. And he says, and may you achieve wealth in, can anybody help me with that word? This is like, I got me, Ephrathah, and become famous in Bethlehem. Ephrathah is synonymous for Bethlehem. It's the same town, just a different name. He says, may you become wealthy and famous. Oh, the irony. The guy who, because he cared about his name, basically was blotted out of like, there's no, we have no idea who that guy is. And they say to Boaz, the son of a prostitute, now marrying a Moabite woman. They say, may you be wealthy. May your name become famous. He goes on to say, moreover, verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. That's sort of strange if you just read it. But if you see Bethlehem, that's the geographical location where they settled. This was their clan. Born to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's almost prophetic. If you would turn with me, you know, as we sort of turn our attention to, uh, to communion. And we start seeing the similarities between Boaz and Christ. Will you turn with me over to Matthew chapter 1? We're going to look at a little genealogy, so don't you go fall asleep on me. But in Matthew chapter 1, this great gospel written to the Jewish people, showing that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. The other gospels, many of start kind of from creation, link back, but, but not Matthew. Matthew starts with Abraham. And he wants to show the, the, the lineage of the Messiah to show the fulfilled prophecy. I want to skip forward to verse 17. Before I look at the first sort of 16 verses to give you the outline of this genealogy. Now look at verse 17. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. So he goes from Abraham to David and he says there's 14 different generations. Great, 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 great. 14 times from David to Abraham. Then he goes from David to the deportation to Babylon. 14 generations. So he goes from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to Babylon, 14 generations. 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Did I get that right? So we have Abraham to David, 14. David to Babylon, 14. Babylon to Jesus, 14 generations. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, and he begins to tell the story. Now, what I want us to do is to go back to verse 1, and we're going to read from Abraham to David, those 14 generations. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was, was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Huh? That sound familiar to you guys? So very early on, we see the first, their, their blessing that they prayed. Perez and Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amimadad, Amimadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Sam, Sal, Sal, Salmon, but I've been calling him Salmon all day, like the fish. <laughs> Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, the prostitute. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, the Moabitess. But Matthew leaves that part out. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. I don't think you get any more famous than that. Here's this man, the son of a prostitute, not of Israel, marries a Moabite woman who they become the grandparents. Oh, man, I turned my page. I think it's the grandparents of the king of Israel where the, the Davidic kingdom, all of this covenant would be promised through him and then the Messiah would come. The irony of this other guy who, who because of his inheritance walked away and Boaz said, don't worry, I love her. I don't care if she's a Moabitist. I'll marry her. And look at his name. Every Christmas around the world, this genealogy gets read and there's Boaz and Ruth, the grandparents of King David. King David, the grandparent of the Messiah. Beautiful. Beautiful. The story of redemption. This line that the Messiah would come through this prostitute who trusted God. Through Ruth who trusted God and following after him. Did Boaz have to redeem her? Absolutely not. You can turn over to uh, the second Corinthians. I want to continue our story as we get close to communion here. As we take communion. So second Corinthians chapter three is where we left off. Jesus didn't have to redeem us. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. Just like Boaz didn't have to redeem her, he chose to. Your good works are like that other guy. You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do. The Bible makes it clear. Our righteousness is like filthy rags and that the literal is a menstrual rag. And so here in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter 3, he begins contrasting the, the spirit And the law, that the law just brings death, condemnation. But through Christ, the Spirit gives us life, a greater glory. Skipping down to, I think, verse 12. He says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end. Of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day. At the reading of the old covenant. The same veil remains unlifted. Because it is removed in Christ. Because you've been redeemed. The veil is gone. But also to this day. Whenever Moses is read. A veil lies, lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord. The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. 
But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So he begins to paint this picture that in, in the old covenant, they, there was death because they were trying to use works, not living by faith. But now that Christ came or they, they understood the purpose of the law in hindsight, suddenly that, that faith in Christ removed this veil that the spirit has come, that they've been redeemed, that there's life then that gives them boldness to, to live and to walk with him and for him. Jumping down to verse 13, he says, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. My joke didn't go over well in the last sermon, so I'm not going to make it a joke. I'm going to make it more of a statement. That knowing that he who raised Jesus, raised the Lord Jesus, Jesus going to the cross, his dying on the cross was essentially his taking off of his shoe and saying, I'll buy them. I will pay for them. The sin, their whole property, their whole estate that is bound up I will free them from the bondage of sin and it'll be a gift. I don't have to do this and they don't have to receive me. And Jesus is standing there kind of with a shoe for you, for lack of better words right now. But we'll get back to the text before I get too off track with Jesus throwing his shoe at you. But he says he raised Jesus from the dead. This is our hope. We'll raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes. So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound for the glory of God. Therefore, we do, do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says, guys, that Jesus rose from the dead. We've been redeemed. We've been given the spirit as a down payment, as a promise of the future, complete redemption. And he says, though, even though our bodies are wasting away and that we'll probably see death unless Christ comes sooner. It doesn't matter because our inner man is being renewed. He goes into verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal to heavens. He begins to show this, this passage that's read at so many funerals. By verse 5, he says, even though you're facing death, even though you're dying, verse 5, he's given us his spirit as a pledge that within us for those who've trusted in Christ, we have the spirit of God within. Verse six, therefore, 
being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but are made manifest to God. I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For we have For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are sound minded, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. For him who redeemed you. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I read a lot there, but I cut it short so that I would have time to do all of this. So as we take communion, transitioning from the story of of Boaz and Ruth, what's the point of communion? Well, the first part of communion is is for Christians. So I don't really, you might be visiting, I I mean, I think I know most everybody here today. This is for those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. And we who are Christians, when we come to the Lord's table, the first thing we're we're asked to do is, is to basically to reflect inward. Yeah, you gave your life to Christ. You're a Christian. Your your position with him is secure. Your relationship, your fellowship, like any relationship, can be strained. And our relationship with God is strained when we sin. And all Christians sin. Amen? We have the flesh. I'm so thankful. We went through Romans. (laughs) But within us, we have the spirit and our flesh, which are at war. And sometimes the flesh gets, gets ahead and... Other times we're doing great in this flesh, but there's this area of our life. And so when we come to take communion, the first thing we're told to do is to basically just to sit, I think, quietly and say, Lord, I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling in this not trusting you in this area of my life. I need help. And then we're told to reflect on the cracker and the juice to remember that it's not about your work. It's about his work on the cross. That the cracker symbolizes his body that was broken. That he died for you as payment for your sin. 
his blood, the new covenant, that we walk in grace, that we stand in him. And finally, as we take the Lord's Supper, we're to remember that he's entrusted us with this ministry of reconciliation. And I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, seriously, all honesty, like I, why would God trust us with evangelism? He could do such a better job. I don't know. I mean, I'd say I'd talk to him when I die, but I'll, I have a feeling I'll have other things on my mind than his plan for evangelism in the world. But he has called us as believers to go therefore make disciples. We're told that when we take communion to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So as we take communion, I always want to encourage us to think about your friends, your coworkers, your family, those that don't know Christ, that not only would we pray for them, but we would say, Lord, I'm willing to be used by you. However, maybe it's sharing the gospel with them. Maybe it's just being kind to them so that they are loved in a way that they've never been loved before so that they would be then opened. I don't know. But as we take communion, what we're going to do is I'm going to pray. I'll get this stuff ready. When you're ready to come take communion, just come up, take the elements. You can return to your seat and just take them whenever you're ready. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful book of Ruth. Lord, I thank you that you, Lord, that you share the story of redemption in so many ways. Lord, having spent the last year in Romans and seeing the great doctrine, the truth, the details of the gospel explained legally, clearly, concisely. And then to see the story of redemption unfold in this beautiful narrative of Ruth. Lord, I thank you that you teach us in a way and and in different ways, Lord, that we could understand. Father, I thank you for this man, Boaz, for his honor, his integrity, his selflessness, Lord, and and really redeeming the land of Elimelech. That he wasn't swayed by Ruth the Moabitess. That, Lord, that he was this picture of graciousness and kindness and love. And to see Ruth, this hardworking, ordinary girl, trusting you to provide and to see how you worked behind the scenes just to orchestrate this story of redemption. And, Father, as we turn our eyes to communion, we... We can't help but to think of Christ as we study Boaz. Or that your word tells us that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We thank you, Lord, that you've been so proactive in the work of our redemption. We didn't ask for it. And I know most of us even rejected the idea of salvation for years and years and years. And that your kindness broke through, Lord. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in my life. I thank you for Christ. I thank you that you're so kind, so merciful, so gracious. Father, as we take this communion, we pray that you would, Lord, help us to keep back, to get back to the basics, Lord. Lord, we want to grow in our relationship with you. If there's sin holding us back, I just pray that you would expose it to us. Lord, help us to break the bondage that it has. Lord, help us to walk with you. Father, we pray for our family members, our co-workers, our loved ones, our neighbors, those that we have relationships with that don't know you as Savior. Father, I pray that you would help us in this task of being your ambassadors. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.